Well, today is uh, May 3rd, and I'm officially back in central Pennsylvania after my uh, cross-country circuitous route to California and back. The closest I got to uh, the Pacific Ocean was in Malibu, and the closest I got to the, uh, the <laughs> Atlantic Ocean was the Chesapeake Bay. A friend of mine who's an engineer who likes closure, very detail-oriented, smart guy, yeah, I mentioned that he wanted, uh, if he did a cross-country trip, uh, he would make sure he got to the Atlantic also. But I got to the uh, Chesapeake. We went to uh, Fort McHenry where the British bombed in the War of 1812 as a revenge for the revolutionary victory of the American forces with the French's uh, assistance, or maybe vice versa. It was really the French War, and the Americans helped if you, if you study what actually happened. It was the French uh, fleet in Yorktown that checkmated the British because the British could always use their naval power to escape the Americans if they were in an unfavorable situation. They had a lot of ships, and the Americans didn't have many. We had a few, uh, but the French were uh, anchored or based off of uh, Yorktown had come up from the Caribbean, and the, uh, the British couldn't get out of Yorktown, and that was unexpected. The French weren't sure they were going to be able to bring the fleet up because they were trying to pr protect their colonies down the Caribbean from uh, British uh, control or overtaking. Uh, so that was a fortuitous move. And it was like the uh, checkmate on the board. The British could evacuate. They did, like from Boston, for example, early in the war, uh, when uh, the colonials and the militia and George Washington had the... Uh, had the uh, higher ground in Dorchester Heights and were raining down cannonballs and fire and ammunition upon the British in Boston. The British did uh, threaten to burn Boston to the ground if the uh, if they were not allowed to evacuate. But we had we had a large chunk of the British force in uh, in Boston proper and uh, George Washington had all the uh, cannons from Fort Ticonderoga uh, captured and dragged across the uh, the tundra, I think it's like 200 or 300 miles, uh, to uh, Dorchester Heights, and we were pounding the British with cannonballs, and they couldn't fire back up because it was too far. Gravity is a great, is a great advantage in war. It's good to have the upper, the upper, uh, the upper ground, like it happened in Gettysburg. Uh, the uh, Federal North had the higher ground versus the South, which was fighting uphill. It's always, always difficult. Anyway, don't mean to give a history lesson here, but nonetheless, there you are. So we ended at Fort McHenry, which was cool. Uh, the flag was still there. Indeed, we saw it. Uh, so that was nice. Uh, but that's the closest I got to the Atlantic Ocean. But the Chesapeake is unbelievably deep. Man, they had uh, huge tankers out there. They have carnival ships, you know, those uh, cruise ships. Uh, so it might as well be the ocean. I think it's partially salt water because it's the confluence of the Susquehanna and the Atlantic Ocean, of course. So that's the bay. And if you like crabs and things like that, that's the uh, Maryland blue crabs. So anyway, I want to get to a reading pretty quick here. We're taking on the 18 Upbuilding Discourses from Soren Kierkegaard. This wasn't all originally published at once. And these, uh, these are direct um, communication. These are religious essays. And uh, Soren has two ways of communicating, which we're going to get into, we've talked about before, which is the indirect kind of Socratic method, 
and he adopts a pseudonym or synonymous work. And it's, it's, the word is called a meiotic, uh, which is the Socratic inquiry, Socratic method of inquiry, which aims to bring a person's latent ideas into clear consciousness. And uh, in theological kind of terminologies is what Cornelius Van Til would call presuppositional uh, thinking or what are our basic uh, tenets about life? What's our worldview, our Weltanschauung in German, our Weltanschauung? What's our worldview? Everybody has it. Everybody uses faith. Everybody has faith in something, believe it or not. If you ever talk to a hardcore materialist, a Darwinist, they have faith in Darwin. They have faith in the Darwinian uh, explanation for uh, diversity and the ascent or descent of species. It has to be an ascent, but I think he called it descent, the descent of species, which is actually not quite correct. It's actually the ascent of species, but I'm not sure about that. I'm not an expert scientifically in all the ins and outs. I've, I've looked at it. I've studied it, but I'm not a biologist. I am an educational psychologist, which is neurologically, cognitively very similar to being a biologist with some with some modifications. It's not quite the same thing, but it has some of the same principles in terms of how people learn and how they interact with their environment and then how the environment uh, impacts cognition. So people would ask me, what's the most profound thing you uh, that you learned on the road trip or experience or moment that touched you the most? There are so many. Uh, I just uh, sat down yesterday with a friend and he wanted to see, believe it or not, all the uh, photos and videos from the trip. <laughs> you know, the old the old story when somebody comes back from vacation, sit down with their friends and show them a slide, uh, a slide presentation. That's what used to happen back in the day when people had cameras and slide projectors. Um, but we sat down and we reviewed the pictures and the uh, videos and told some stories. And he was uh, involved in the trip to start with. He was the guy that was tracking me on my location in my iPhone. He knew where I was at all times. Uh, that was helpful. Just in case uh, I smashed into a moose or got stuck in a snowstorm, he would know that something had happened because I was not following the agenda. And there were so many... Uh, profound uh, moments it's hard to boil them down but there was one that I think stands out a bit and it was interesting it was at a cemetery around Pasadena maybe in Los Angeles somewhere where we came upon a, a simple gravestone from the uh, actor and dancer Fred Astaire um, and it said on his tombstone just the basic uh, birth and death stuff you know which is common but it also had the phrase thank you that's all it said. Thank you. And, you know, when celebrities die, sometimes they have very ostentatious, um, uh, you know, mausoleums or monuments or things of that nature. And uh, it's not unusual. They'd like to make a statement, uh, even in death, that they were something. But this little, uh, this little gravestone, very humble. You wouldn't know it was there unless you actually had done some research. It doesn't stand out. It's there with just typical people. There's Fred Astaire with just a simple thank you. And I, uh, I derived an enormous amount of joy from that simple statement. I think we have to live our lives with a sense of thank you and gratitude. Imagine if I was able to take this trip for uh, over 30 days and drive 7,408 miles, which is, I think, what I drove because that's what Google Maps is telling me. I also walked uh, an average of 3.5 miles a day, 
uh, for over 30 days. That's over 100 miles. And actually lost 15 pounds of weight. <laughs> I think that's partially due to the food poisoning. Imagine if I wasn't grateful for this. Imagine if I was just like, well, I deserved it. I deserve everything good that comes my way. I am just such an enormously cool person that I deserve to be able to do this. That would be very ungrateful. That would be very much in the spirit of not giving thanks. I am thankful to God, first of all, that he allowed me to have a successful career where I was able to retire from after 30 years of the public school. I'm grateful that I have the financial resources to be able to travel and the health because uh, I've learned from my dad's situation and from others that you can't take your health for granted, that's for sure. I'm also really thankful for my friends on social media that most people were really into the trip. They weren't, I didn't pick up on a spirit of jealousy or a spirit of negativity. Um, but I have also weeded out a lot of the negative influences in my life on social media. I just don't deal with it. I think I've said this before. If somebody acts ignorantly, ignorantly to me on social media, whether it's a friend or a stranger or a supposed friend, I just block them. Now, if they're a really good friend, I'll, I'll first confront them privately and ask them what their, what their deal is. Why do they feel the need to be overly negative? But if they're a complete stranger and they uh, and they curse me or they abuse me or put up that stupid clown emoji, man, they're gone. They're distance. I take care of that immediately. I don't put up with that stuff anymore. So my social media is 99% positive. So anybody that I'm friends with, either on Instagram or someone on Twitter, which is a little bit more impersonal, or Facebook in particular, I would say 99.9% .9 of those people are good friends. And most of them would sacrifice for me as I would for them. And this trip was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to reignite some of these friendships that uh, have, have existed in the past, but because of distance have become a little bit less bright. And uh, this is an opportunity to throw some wood on the fire and to let them rekindle. Uh, I do believe social media helps maintain uh, relationships, but I think face-to-face uh, communication um, ultimately is much more rich. It's like oxygen for a fire. It's it provides a lot more of what the uh, fire needs, including the um, the fuel, uh, the logs or whatever, the oxygen and the combination thereof. So, 18 upbuilding discourses by Soren Kierkegaard, edited and translated by Howard V. Hong and Edna H. Hong. I wanted to go out to their library, uh, which is in memorial to their translation work of, of Soren's, Soren's books uh, out in St. Louis College. But I had to um, had to forego that because a blizzard was coming to Minneapolis and I had about two hours to get through Minneapolis proper in order to get to my brother and sister-in-law's and kids' house and uh, outside of Minneapolis, north of Minneapolis. And the day after, I think I may have talked about this before, so pardon the redundancy if I do mention this, um, I had about two hours to make that trip uh, once I got into Minneapolis proper, and then this ice storm was going to happen, and then a blizzard. And it came. Uh, I got there safely, and then it closed down. And the next day when we were out driving about visiting uh, craft breweries and distilleries and restaurants, uh, there were many, many cars and ditches and accidents and had to be towed out of... Uh, out of uh, like hill or trenches and things like that off the roads. So that would have been me. It would have happened to me. So I had to forego going to St. Olaf's uh, 
Kierkegaard Library, which houses a lot of the Hong's translation work of Sorn, and a lot of Sorn stuff too. And I don't want to put the person at risk either who's the uh, was the person that was going to open the library just for me on that Friday. They were technically in spring break, but she was willing to open the library for an hour. But I said, I don't feel right putting you at risk in addition to myself. I don't like putting myself at risk, but that's a little bit more in my control. I didn't like the idea of um, putting her at risk. So I just took a pass, and that was a common theme in this trip. There's just certain things I couldn't do because reality, reality was stating otherwise. So Soren, of course, was born... Um, thank you for uh, putting up with these kind of introductory things, but thank you. That was the most profound thing I experienced. It was just a beautiful day in Pasadena. I was hanging out with my buddy Todd, and he didn't tell me which grave we were going to, and we just stumbled upon this grave that he knew was there, but I had no idea. He was going to take me to this other cemetery where Marilyn Monroe and Hugh Hefner and all these big wigs are buried, but the uh, gate was locked. It's usually open, so there was something going on. But I much more would like to pay homage to an individual like Fred Astaire versus uh, like a guy like Hugh Hefner, which I think is... The man did some amazing work in a very negative way. Uh, he was successful, but he did it by appealing to what is worse in humanity versus what is best. And the legacy of that obviously has been very destructive, but Hugh Hefner has gotten his reward, as has Fred Astaire. And I, know, I don't know where either one of them stood with their faith, but these 18 upbuilding discourses were not all published at one time. Soren was born in 1813. The first of these 18 uh, discourses, two of them, was published in May 16, 1843. So Soren would have been 30 years old, approximately. His birthday sometime in May. It's coming up. I forget exactly when. I'll have to look at my calendar. Happy birthday, Soren, if it's uh, before next week. But he was publishing these um, these discourses uh, concurrently with his more pseudonymous works that were indirect. So the upbuilding discourses are very direct in terms of uh, Soren's religious perspective as a Christian. He doesn't use indirect communication. He doesn't use this term called mayudic. Uh, mayutically uh, conveying truth, which is indirect. It's He actually kind of uses the word it's deceptive when he's being mayutic. He's trying to trap people in the truth, and they don't see it coming. Um, but he was publishing these concurrently, although it's true that Soren became more religious in his writings as he got older and he's approached his death. He, from the very beginning, wrote on these two tracks, both uh, in his own name as Soren Kierkegaard and also as uh, with these pseudonymous works. So it wasn't a question of him doing one or the other, other completely at the beginning. He did more non-religious writings at the beginning, and it trended towards more religious as he got older, especially after the breakup with Regina and also with his battles with the Corsair, which made him kind of a pariah in Copenhagen. We've talked about that before. So uh, a few years after the publication of his six uh, small volumes of upbuilding discourses, so these were s published in six um, six publishing events uh, for a total of 18. So this is 1843 to 1844. So this is pretty early on in, in his authorship in terms of his publication, at least. He may have written these uh, prior to those dates, but this is when they were published. Soren Kierkegaard was faced uh, with the question of whether to publish the point of view as my, for my work as an author. He starts, if I do nothing at all directly to assure a full understanding of my whole literary production, then what? 
then there will be no judgment at all on my authorship in its totality, for no one has sufficient faith or time or competence to look for a comprehensive plan. <laughs> and I would say, I am the I am the fool that is trying to do that. I look at the amount of books that Soren had read, and I shudder, because I am not sure I am going to be able to read them, even before I turn 100, if I do turn 100. Especially if I continue to do it this way, which is to read them for these episodes. If I do nothing at all directly to assure a full understanding of my whole literary production, then what? And I have most of his books. I don't have 100% of them, but I probably have 98% of what Soren, Soren had written that has been translated to English. There may be some stuff on the other side of the Atlantic in Danish that hasn't been translated yet. Then there will be no judgment at all. My authorship in its totality, for no one has sufficient faith or time or competence to look for a comprehensive plan, which in uh, Danish and perhaps English is called total hyphen analog. Okay, analog. Analog's an interesting word. And analog is kind of the whole system. In the entire production, consequently, the verdict will be that I have changed somewhat over the years. Uh, so it will be, this distresses me, I am deeply convinced that there is another integral coherence, that there is a comprehensiveness in the whole production, especially through the assistance of governance. And I assume that governance is another word for providence, which is another word for God. Um, when George Washington used the word providence, he uh, meant that God was involved in the affairs of men. So he wasn't a, he wasn't a strict um, Unitarian or a deist because sometimes uh, Washington is pegged as a, um, as a dude that was kind of a deist and he wasn't. He believed that God was involved in the affairs of mankind and influenced events. So it's more of an act of providence versus a passive providence. The God just didn't wind up the universe and say, lots of luck, I'll be out playing golf, let me know if you need a hand, I'm not going to give it to you anyway. And that is certainly something else to be said about this meager uh, comment that in a way the author has changed, so, uh, uh, so I would call that a meager comment, meager, meager is an interesting word. Uh, so, Two Upbuilding Discourses was published on May 16th, 80, 1843. I just want to give you kind of an uh, outline of the general gist of this book. Three were published on October 16th, 80, 1843. So, there's a chance that he wrote the, these three after May 16th. Four were published December 6th, 1843. Two were published on March 5th, 1844. Three were published on June 8th, 1844. And four were published on August uh, 31st, um, 1844. And I did the math before, and that comes to a total of 18, I believe. At the heart of the coherent, comprehensive plan, despite many differences among the published works, and within the types of writing, it is a, a common intention to make aware. I'm not going to cite where these, these quotes come from. This is all from Soren, though. The category of, uh, for my undertaking is to make persons aware of the essentially Christian, but this accounts for the repeated statement, I am not that, for otherwise there is confusion. My task is to get the person deceived, get the persons deceived within the meaning of truth into a religious commitment, which they have cast off. But I do not have authority. Instead of authority, I use the very opposite. I say the whole undertaking is for my own discipline and education. 
This again is a genuinely Socratic approach, just as he was the ignorant ones. So here, instead of being the teacher, I am the one who's being educated. And I think there's truth to that. I've heard more than one writer say that when they write, they teach themselves first, either like in a fictional work where the characters kind of come alive and the person is learning from their characters, like the characters begin to reveal how they'll ha handle certain situations or interact with life. But it's also true in a nonfiction sense that uh, I know that when I put things in writing, like I did this entire road trip first as an outline, and I was able to see the connection between all the people I knew all across the United States and how I could kind of leapfrog like a frog from lily pad to lily pad across the United States, down through California and back across the United States. I don't know everybody in the United States. I did not every stop that I had, I didn't have somebody necessarily, but I would say 80%. Of locations where I stopped, I stopped there intentionally. Either I'd been there before, or I had family or friends there, and that was made it so much fun. <clears throat> so Soren says um, he states that the work is offered with the right hand, in contrast to the pseudonyms which were held out with uh, held out with the left hand. So this is the difference of the two types of works that he did: the more religious versus the ethical or aesthetic. Duplexity, he uses the, a word called duplexity versus duplicity, but he's always on two tracks, like a train, I guess, or something like that. The distinction between two series of published works, the pseudonymous works and the upbuilding discourses, is not incompatible with the stress upon a comprehensive plan and a common aim that embraces the variety kinds, levels of development, and modes of approach. And an analogous variety is evident also within the range of each of these two series. The essential commonality and the particular differences between the upbuilding discourses and the pseudonymous works, and also between the early and late works in each series, are epitomized by certain characteristics that and emphasis found in the discourses. The most obvious difference is that where the pseudonymous works from either or through con concluding unscientific postscripts are indirect communication, the signed discourses from the first to last are direct. And that's why the charge that Soren's not a clear and concise and truthful Christian is so false, because if you read his religious writings, they are very direct. Uh, also, in a, in a way that's kind of um, very imposing, like he is so prophetic. Uh, but these two modes of communication have ultimately the same aim, to make uh, aware the religious, the essentially Christian. Uh, so we have talked about that before. But just as that which has been communicated, the idea of the religious has been cast entirely into reflection and taken back again out of reflection, so also the communication has been decisively marked by reflection or the form of communication used as that of reflection. Direct communication is to communicate the truth directly. Communication and reflection is to deceive into the truth. Um, and this is there's a term called mythio uh, poetic, which is what C.S. Lewis termed his his kind of non-religious writings. Uh, most of his writings are indirectly religious or directly religious. He kind of follows the same track as uh, C.S. Lewis. And but Chronicles of Narnia, for example, would be more of an indirect communication. You have to see the um, the analog of the Christian story within Narnia. It's it's like mythology. 
Um, somebody could read those books and not appreciate or understand that they were written on the Gospels and written on the, a story of um, creation, fall, redemption, restoration type of idea. Uh, but people can can read the Chronicles of Nardia, uh, which were written for children ultimately, but um, not understand that they were basically a Christian metaphor. Um, C.S. Lewis is not that obvious, but he termed that mythopoetic. And so Soren is doing the same thing in, in a lot of his indirect writings, is that he's trying to trap people in the truth. And one of the ways you do that is you ask questions. You don't make statements, but you ask questions, and you try to get people to unpeel their um, existential onion, so to speak. Like, what are the core of your beliefs? And if you don't believe there's any purpose in life, that ultimately it's just about survival, the next question is, why is survival so important? Why does your DNA need to survive? You're not going to experience any benefit from your DNA going into the uh, succeeding generations experientially. You're, you're going to be dead and in the ground. So you may roll the dice in the casino of life, but when it comes to win or losses, you're not going to be there to collect it. So uh, a person like me would ask people those kind of questions, like what gives you purpose when life is essentially purposeless according to your worldview? And that's a bit threatening, uh, and Soren is trying to strip away the... Uh, Strip away the layers. Uh, the situation becoming a Christian in Christendom, which where constantly one is a Christian, the situation uh, which, as any dialectician sees, casts everything into reflection, also makes an indirect method necessary because the task here must be to take measure against the illusion calling oneself a Christian, perhaps deluding oneself into thinking one is a Christian when one is not. Um, when I went to uh, Mount Vernon recently, before I headed to uh, Fort McHenry with some friends, I went to Mount Vernon. And it's easier to approach from the south. That's where uh, George Washington had his, his estate. And it's easier to go up uh, from like the Richmond area. I was surprised how many Civil War battles had occurred along that corridor. I tended to think most of the Civil War battles were further west in Virginia. And there are a bunch of them there, but it was amazing the amount of battlefields that were fairly close to Richmond because I think the North was trying to capture Richmond and choke the Confederacy right at, right at its epicenter. And Robert E. Lee and the Confederate forces uh, kept repelling them. But I went to uh, Mount Vernon and came up from uh, North Carolina, and it was a good way to go. Uh, then, then it put me into the D.C. Baltimore matrix after that, which was crazy. Uh, but I got to see, uh, you know, George Washington's uh, home and a lot of his statements about various things. And there's clear that he valued religion, but it was more of a civic thing that it taught virtue. And, and George Washington was a pretty virtuous person for his age. It is true that he had slaves. Uh, he did free his slaves when he died, which was so unusual back in the day. He was basically creating a, a course uh, of direction for Mount Vernon that was going to lead to its destruction because it was very dependent on labor. This is before machinery had come in and automated a lot of manual tasks. And unfortunately, if you were a landowner back in uh, you know, uh, the revolutionary era, if you owned a lot of land, I'm not talking about like a, a small homestead or something, you're very dependent on labor. And because of the mercantile economy with, uh, with Britain, is you couldn't make enough money uh, to pay 
to pay for your bills without without very cheap labor, whether it was uh, black people or it was indentured uh, white people or something like that. There was a difference between white kind of indentured nature or the idea that somebody would come from a different country and be committed to somebody for seven years and then freed, which wasn't the status of the, of the African-American slaves, of course. But, uh, you know, George Washington still in his grave. He's still, in, he's still laying there. Uh, he wasn't raised. So civic religion is, is valuable in the sense that it gives kind of a common a commonality. And it would be kind of based on the commandments in, in a sense, especially the last, the last uh, five commandments of don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't, don't lie, um, those type of things. Uh, you can't have a functioning society where people have different essential values. You just can't. Uh, you have to believe in the truth. You have to believe that it's good not to sleep around on your on your spouse. You have to believe it's good not to steal. And, you know, the rich steal from the poor just legally, so we know that. Um, but he's still laying in his grave, and civic religion is, is not... Um, it's not ultimately very powerful. It's it's a basis, but it's not enough. It's not revelation. It's not the spirit of God coming in and changing a people from the inside out. It's more based on outward observance. And I, I saw the lack of power in it, and um, but the, you know the founding fathers were very aware of the dangers of compulsion in religious matters, and that's why the Constitution has freedom of religion. It's not freedom from religion. It's freedom of religion, and that's an important difference. They didn't want to see the state underwrite the uh, church, and, and as it was in, in Denmark and Copenhagen and elsewhere, and also the all the uh, bloody history of religious wars. If you just study uh, from the first century onwards, especially after the Roman Empire kind of subsumed the church, once power became the uh, the basis for the church, the sword then it began to be corrupted from within, which ultimately was manifested in the Reformation, which had its own sense of power in using the sword. So the church should always operate by persuasion. It shouldn't operate by uh, compulsion. Uh, compulsion has a way of creating perhaps outward obedience, but it's as little as possible. Uh, whereas persuasion is, I'm in this because I believe it. And I had the opportunity to visit three different churches over my, over my travels, and I was reminded uh, within that context that there are a lot of sincere people that follow, follow the truth and they're doing the best they can. Uh, so there's not, the hypocrisy charge is true, uh, but it's not entirely true. There are true believers everywhere. Uh, other distinctions are made at the beginning of the preface in each of the six volumes that make up the 18 upbuilding discourses. This little book, which is called Discourses, are not sermons because the author does not have authority to preach upbuilding discourses nor discourses for upbuilding because the speaker by no means claims to be a teacher. The first distinction between discourses and sermons rests primarily on the absence of authority of ordination. I am only a poet, Kierkegaard writes. I have continually repeated that there are these that they are not sermons or have pointed to the sermon as something higher. Furthermore, according to Johannes Climacus, the discourses are distinguishable by their use of the ethical categories of eminence, not the doubly reflected religious categories in the paradox. So go figure that one out and get back to me. I kind of understand it, but I'm not going to try to explain it. I get part of it. Um, Therefore, the sermon not only is distinguishable from the upbuilding discourses on the basis of authority, but also on the content, uh, but as something higher. 
two of my friends on this road trip, uh, Josh and Carter, suggested that I should be a priest <laughs> or should think about becoming a priest. And I'm like, ugh, a priest. Oh, Lord, don't make me a priest. I prefer the idea of being a philosopher, which is using persuasion, uh, especially with non-Christians, to help them pursue the beauty of God and the truth of God and the love of God, the joy of God, all those things. But not to uh, be a pastor wearing robes. Although I did inquire where, whether I could get a 2XLT robe, 2 extra long tall, because I'm a large man. Um, drinking my buddy's coffee here from the fig tree. It's an Ethiopian bean, but it's been roasted a little bit dark, dark more darkly. So it is uh, it does well in the French press. So I am getting caffeinated as we speak. But I don't want to ask Josh if he wants to sponsor my podcast because I have to probably run that through Spotify. I think pretty sure they want me to use the sponsors they give me, um, and that might be something I don't agree with. Uh, from the very beginning, I've stressed and repeated unchanged that it was without authority. I re regard myself as a reader of the books, not as the author. Before God, religiously, I call my whole work as an author when I speak with myself, my own upbringing and development, but not in the sense as if I were now complete or completely finished with respect to needing upbuilding and development. For upbuilding pertains to the nature of the content of a work as well as Kierkegaard's own relation to that content. So this is the Hongs here. Therefore, the expression is used in the subtitle of The Sickness Unto Death, a work of the second period, just as Anticlimacus, the author of that work, is above Johannes Climacus, the author of Fragments and Postscripts. Before him ranks, so also the content of that work is more rigorous and more authoritatively Christian. So this is Soren here. It finally came to bear the inscription for upbuilding and awakening. This uh, for awakening actually is the more that came out of the year 1848. But it is also the more that is so much higher than my own person that I use a pseudonym for it. I use only the poetic designation, upbuilding, not even for upbuilding. <laughs> I don't know. Soren's an interesting bird sometimes. Uh, the phrase for upbuilding is also used in the title and text of Thoughts That Wound From Behind, Part 3 of the Christian Discourses, 1848. For the use uh, for upbuilding, and the text bears out Kierkegaard's distinction between the levels of content and the presence or absence of authority. Watch out, therefore, when you go into the Lord's house, because there... You will come to hear the truth for upbuilding. What is spoken of, therefore, and truly for our upbuilding uh, is that there is a deliverance for sinners, comfort for the repentant, for all things must serve for good for those who love God. And that's out of Romans. Oh, how often these words are said and repeated again and again, explained and expounded for upbuilding, for comfort, for reassurance. But it is blessed to suffer mockery, for a good cause, in order that for upbuilding we might become aware of the comfort or rather the joy that Christianity proclaims. And uh, Soren's referring kind of directly to uh, his battles with the Corsair. Uh, put him, made him a, uh, an object of ridicule in Copenhagen. An upbuilding discourse about love presupposes that people know essentially what love is and seeks to win them to it, to move them, but this is certainly not the case. Therefore, the deliberation must first first fetch them out of the cellar. Must first fetch them up out of the cellar. Call them, call to call 
call to them, turn their comfortable way of thinking topsy-turvy with the dialectic of truth. So he's using a little, little Hegel there. The most apparent single common element for the perspective of the reader among all the works, whether pseudonymous or signed, is that they are addressed to the single individual, den in Kelke, or in Kelte. The centrality of the single individual, characteristic of what Kierkegaard, uh, Kierkegaard's understanding of it is, the designation of one is compacted in a passage in the accounting. So I'm not going to read all that. It's just too much. I'm trying to get through the historical... Um, introduction but when you appeal to the single individual it's not a political party it's not about power it's about persuasion and soren does believe in the church he does believe in the congregation but it should be of the willing not the forced and that is true about religious health in general freedom of religion versus freedom from religion the government was supposed to be a lot smaller than it is and slavery unfortunately put a lot of power into the federal government that was not going to be there initially. States' rights was specifically about slavery. When people say that the Civil War was about states' rights, it's true, but it's not true. It's states' rights in regards to slavery, that the, um, the states in the South in particular wanted the right to still hold slaves because they said it was in the Constitution. So it's about states' rights, but the next question to ask a Southerner or Confederate defender is, what was the states' rights concerning? What was the issue? And if they can't answer that question, they're just an uneducated racist or just a stupid person, knowingly ignorant. So it was about slavery. And read the, uh, read the articles of secession from the specific states about how central slavery was to states' rights. Regardless, um, um, the federal government became a lot larger because it was the only thing that could break the, break the institution of slavery. You had to use the power of the federal government, specifically uh, the federal uh, northern uh, military forces, to break the back of the South. And the, and the South wasn't really broken. It just came back in a new malignancy with Jim Crow and segregation, all that kind of stuff. So the Constitution only can go so far. Uh, they thought racism, they thought slavery was right. We could punish them for it, but they never admitted it was wrong, and that was part of the problem. So they had to be forced to change and that was came at a cost because it just uh, the slavery and segregation came back in a different way through Jim Crow and segregation and low wages and all that kind of stuff but anyway uh, sharecropping and blah 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 uh, so um, let me see if I can finish this up here small as it is it'll probably slip through until it finds what is seeking that favorably disposed person who reads aloud to himself what I write in stillness who with his voice breaks the spell on the letters, with his voice summons forth what the mute letters have on their lips. So he wants you to read uh, his, his writings aloud. He, he talks about that over and over again. Um, above all, I must repeat that I have in mind readers who read aloud. For example, in the 18 Upbuilding Discourses, the frequent absence of question marks and long interrogatory interrogatory you know what I'm trying to say, sentence with a descending inflection because of the concluding phrase and clauses is in conformity with the way the portion would be read aloud. There is the explicit invitation to reading aloud in the preface to three upbuilding discourses, 1843. So this is where I'm going to end here with one last thing. The invitation is repeated in another form and the purpose of reading aloud is also stated in the preface to the three discourses of 1844. The book seeks only that the reader 
gives an opportunity to what is said, brings the cold thoughts into flame again, transforms the discourse into a conversation. So that is uh, page 21 of the historical background, historical introduction to 18 upbuilding discourses. I'm going to call this um, season three because we're starting a new book. Those two episodes I did on the road, I know that it wasn't strong on Soren in terms of the readings of, from his book, but was using excursions with Kierkegaard by Edward Mooney, the professor of religion and theology <clears throat> and uh, philosophy emeriti of uh, Syracuse University most recently. Uh, but we're going to go hardcore into these 18 upbuilding discourses. I'm hoping to make it one episode per per discourse, if possible. But knowing me, my uh, loquacity or loquacity or verbosity or flatulence of, the, of my mouth will probably make them more than just one episode. But that's the goal. And we're almost finished the historical uh, background here, so just a few more. But cold thoughts into flame. Uh, Soren wants us to read it aloud as if we would put a match to the wood and watch it, watch it catch fire. So that's it for today. I think that's about where we are at. Just one last reflection. We, we, um, the purpose of this podcast is to provide some uh, encouragement to Christians that their faith is truly true, as Francis Schaeffer would have said, even though he wasn't a huge fan of Soren. Truly true, true truth. But also to non-Christians, as God is who you are looking for in all your ways and all your searching and all your thoughts and all your deliberations, you don't understand that you want God. You don't understand that he has made you for himself. And uh, if I can do that as a Christian, to point people to the truth of the gospel manifested in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, uh, then I have done my work. And that's what my goal is. And we will hopefully see you next week, Lord willing.